traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week, in a special edition of The Economist Asks, we investigate the Merkel machine ahead of Germany's general elections on Sunday. We'll take stock of Angela Merkel's campaign for the Christian Democrat Party, the CDU, and the impact she's made as Chancellor over the last 12 years. I'll also have a walk around her seat of power, the Chancellery in Berlin, and check out her view from the Cabinet table. Joining me too is Jeremy Cliff, our Berlin bureau chief. He's currently in Schwerin in the north of Germany, waiting to see Merkel at one of her closing election rallies. Hello, Jeremy. Hello, Anne. Now, Merkel is predicted to win confidently and form another governing coalition. But can we trust the polls this time? Are you putting your last euro on a big Merkel win? I would certainly put a good amount of money on her coming first uh, and with a large advantage over the Social Democrats with whom she's in government, the SPD. Um, Germany's uh, polls are usually pretty accurate. Looking back at the last election in 2013, all of the main parties came within a point or two of what was predicted in the final uh, round of opinion polls. So I, I don't expect any surprises. But of course, the big question is, how do the smaller parties do and what does that mean for government formation? Well, I'm interested first in the Social Democrats. Martin Schulz started out the quite feisty campaign. She's seen off many SPDers in her time. Do you think there's any hope that he gets a late rally, not so much as to overtake her, but to perhaps be a more important player in those coalition negotiations than we've been reflecting? If he is going to have a late rally, I don't think we've seen much sign of it yet. Uh, We now have uh, very little time before the election. And although the SPD has managed to catch up in previous elections, I'm thinking, for example, of the 2005 election when Gerhard Schroeder, then the Chancellor, very nearly uh, kept Angela Merkel from becoming Chancellor in the first place. I I think there's very little time left for that now. It would be a quite remarkable um, uh, feat, I think, if he did manage that in the final days and hours of the campaign. Angela Merkel regarded as a muti, a kind of mother figure, almost an extended family member for a lot of Germans, whether or not they support her politically. She has to make quite a distinct pitch, doesn't she, to stay a fourth time, given that the fourth term of Helmut Kohl, indeed Konrad Adenauer, just after the Second World War, these were not successful. So what's her pitch to stay? Yes, she's running the risk of the curse of the fourth term in the Chancellery. And in fact, when she became Chancellor, she said that she didn't want to keep stay in the job until she was, in her words, a half-dead wreck. And so it is, it is a risky decision to go for this. I, I understand that she did think very carefully about it. Um, she was partly um, inspired to go for this fourth term by the election of Donald Trump and the sense that the world needed some stability. And that's fundamentally her pitch to Germans. It's saying um, the world is changing, uh, Germany is a beacon of stability, but we need a a strong leader who knows the ropes, who knows how to deal with strong men leaders on the world stage uh, to keep Germany in its happy uh, current circumstances. So it's, it's, it's a pitch based very strongly on stability. Well, Angela Merkel went head-to-head with her main rival, Martin Schulz, in the first and only televised debate between the two on the 3rd of September. And here's a flavour of that. 
Einen schönen guten Abend hier live aus Berlin und herzlich willkommen. Well, this was a long debate over 90 minutes and a lot of it turned around questions arising from that refugee crisis. Turkey, East Germany, the mood in the country. There was a broader theme, I think, which was Germany in Europe and where it fits in the world. And this is catnip to Angela Merkel. She tends to breeze through these things. A few little slips, she came under a bit of pressure on her relationship with Turkey and the deal she did there to prevent a second wave of refugees. She looked most embarrassed, though, when she was asked if she'd been to church. It was a Sunday, after all. She said no, she hadn't been. She looked a little bit flustered at the question. Then she thought on her feet and said actually she had dropped into church the day before in memory of her father, who was a Lutheran pastor. Then darum geht gestern in einer Kirche, weil da mein Vater seinen Todestag hatte. That was one of the few moments I think Angela Merkel had not prepared for. But overall, she came through it pretty well. And afterwards, the verdict was that she had done well. Around 60% of those questioned thought that she had beaten Martin Schulz. Only about 20-something percent thought he'd done amazingly well and the rest uh, didn't really care that much, I suppose. Uh, Jeremy, I thought this was a bit of a bloodless affair. What was your take on it? Actually, I thought it served German voters rather badly. I thought the questions that were asked didn't really get to the areas where uh, Martin Schulz and Angela Merkel disagree. Um, they didn't talk, for example, about the future of the Eurozone or about um, the future of Germany's defence role. Um, and I thought the fact of there being four presenters for two candidates was uh, got in the way of a, a real interrogation of the two candidates. So I, I wasn't overly impressed by it. Afterwards, I headed to the scrum of cameramen around Angela Merkel as she enjoyed, if that's the right word, a glass of wine. Clearly a picture intended for the next day's papers. This is as close as I'm going to get to a glass of wine with Angela Merkel. She appeared in the scrum just beside us and suddenly there was wine there. Clearly the impression that's been created is that she's relaxed. Sunday night, she's had the big debate. Had a couple of words with her. She said she felt that she deserved a, a glass of wine uh, after that long on stage battle there with Martin Schulz. But there's also something wary about her. She's constantly looking around. She's gauging reactions. She's not a politician who comes off the stage and then is someone very off the cuff and informal in private. There's a real sense that she's still quite on. She's still weighing up reactions to her. I found that quite interesting to see so close up. I'm just moving over to the SPD huddle, um, not surprisingly a bit smaller perhaps than the, the one around the German Chancellor. But there's one message being pumped out by the SPD by everyone I've spoken to, both in the cabinet with Angela Merkel and outside it, is that she takes too long to make decisions, that she waits, she waits for other people to lead the way. And their message is that Germany is at a point where it needs much more decisive, consequent leadership is a phrase that came up a lot tonight. But the question is whether German voters really do want more consequent leadership, whether they really do want someone who leads from the front and makes decisions quickly. On the whole, the opinion polls would seem to suggest they're quite happy with someone who takes their time. That's certainly Angela Merkel.
There's no strong reason why the SPD is doing badly in the polls. The party's implemented a number of its policies, like a minimum wage and gay marriage in government. In Martin Schulz, it has a moderate leader who, as a former European Parliament president, is not implicated in the compromises the party had to make along the way. Yet still the party struggles to differentiate itself from its rivals. I went to an SPD rally in Weimar, a beautiful town south of Berlin in the state of Thuringia, where, back in the day, the SPD used to come first in federal elections. First of all, I went to the marketplace to canvass opinions about Martin Schulz and the SPD. The SPD are not so bad, but they just lack a little bit more... They bring too little, they don't have enough imagination to get things done. At the start I was actually quite positive about Martin Schulz, but now I think him, well, too insipid. Somehow he doesn't put forward arguments about what he wants to achieve in politics, and so I find the SPD's overall offer weak. I'm absolutely not a fan of the CDU. I'd rather vote for Schultz than Mrs Merkel, because it's time for this cliqueishness to go. Certainly no grand coalition again, because that's bad for Germany in general. Opposition would be better than grand coalition. I found Schultz really good in terms of what he stood for. I mean the European Parliament. But now I find him too aggressive, too obstinate. I don't see the calm there, so in this position I can't back him. Then it was on to the rally, where I got a sense that the SPD were falling back on last resorts. Sigmar Gabriel, the SPD foreign minister of Germany, tried to portray Angela Merkel as President Trump's poodle for increasing defence spending in what the SPD party ludicrously calls an arm race. Donald Trump fordert von uns in Deutschland die Verdopplung unseres Rüstungsetats. Mr. Gabriel said Donald Trump is demanding 70 billion euros from Germany, doubling the country's arms budget. He said that, without any conditions, the CDU is going along with this madness, in his phrase. Probably, he added, because they hope they can somehow calm Mr. Trump that way. Mr. Gabriel believes that's a terrible development. To get a confident election result, the CDU needs to appeal to younger voters. A theme of Merkel's campaign has been digitization, not exactly a soar-away election motto, but it's intended to show that the CDU wants a Germany that can press ahead in technology. So I went along to the CDU's digital installation in Mitte, in the gritty, trendy part of Berlin. And I stood in front of a huge digital board, about 10 metres or so wide. The first thing that the CDU was telling us there was that the number of people employed in Germany had gone up. The message was quite plain. Under Angela Merkel, you're more likely to get a job. Lots of data points, lots of whiz-bang visuals and an attempt to show what the Christian Democrats have got with the 21st century. I also witnessed campaigning moving away from the traditional methods and went to see Christian Zinker, a former CDU staffer whose firm has built an app called Connect17 to help volunteers for the party go door-to-door and build up data. The traditional approach in Germany to campaign um, is quite different from that what uh, the people are probably used from the US. Um, there are big gatherings, big events in the middle of the cities. Um, they, there are a lot of posters and uh, banners all around, um, which are quite expensive. 
And um, the Germans also do canvassing, but um, a little bit different. Um, usually um, a couple of people uh, are gathering in the middle of a market square um, they have a table and they stand around and they are waiting for um, citizens to approach them, um, to ask them questions, which is not the most active approach um, around. I climbed the hilly streets of Jena, a prosperous and youthful town also in Thuringia, to go door knocking with campaigners from the CDU or the Schwarzen, the Black Party, as they are known. They were using the new app. Hello, guten Abend. Wir kommen von der CDU und wollten Ihnen im Rahmen der Bundestag... Dankeschön. Ja? Ich bin nicht für die Schwarzen. Okay, gut. Schönen Guten Abend. Danke, Dankeschön. ebenfalls. So, we just uh, met a voter outside their house. Um, tell me how you then in input this information. We're looking at the app now. Yeah, so we have the Connect17 app and we open the app and now we have uh, the opportunity to type in personal data um, like the street and the city we are right uh, right now and then we have the um, opinion about the party. Uh, so we're, look we're looking at three smiley faces. One's happy, one's a bit neutral and the other one's not so happy and yeah. so this is... This is their opinion about our political party. And this all goes to party headquarters? Yes, of course, and it's also important for the next election because then we have a big source of data and we know which street of houses are good for us and which not. So we just spoke to a lady who was willing to take some electoral materials but didn't say how she would vote. So how do you how do you value that? Um, I've, I think I, I looked at her face and I saw like, how, she, how she acted and uh, it seems like she was not too likely to vote for CDU. So is she, is she a neutral face or a unhappy face? Yeah, I would definitely put a neutral face, but that's exactly the kind of voter we might impress with our tactic because um, she might think about it, oh, they, they made the extra effort to come to my door and um, get into personal contact and maybe after she looks through the material and through this personal contact she will um, maybe vote for the CDU after all. Germany has especially strict privacy laws, making the sort of door-to-door -door campaigning common in Britain and America impossible. But the app skirts carefully around them. It never uses voters' names or addresses, for example. The CDU used it successfully earlier this year in state elections, where it unexpectedly coaxed high numbers of CDU supporters to polling stations. Karl Schaumann told me what incentives are built into the app to encourage volunteers to knock on as many doors as possible and get a better ranking in the app. And there's a very, very special um, gimmick. Um, the first 10 people every week get a personal phone call by Angela Merkel. Wow. So I guess that's uh, quite interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's quite an incentive. Yeah. From door knocking to the grandest doors of all, those of the Chancellor and or the Chancellery, I got a rather rare tour of Angela Merkel's seat of power. I'm walking through the rather cavernous halls of the Kanzleramt in Berlin. Very modern building. At its worst, it looks like an underground car park, but then it, it opens up. I'm on the eighth floor where Angela Merkel and her private staff sit, and it's a truly impressive view across Berlin. I can look to the east and see the television tower. I can see the Reichstag in front of me. And this is where Angela Merkel receives many of her international visitors. It's modern, it's open, it's a lot of glass and greenery. 
you could say it's an image of the new Germany that she wants to represent. That's extraordinary that it's so close. Thank you. I'm getting a sneaky look inside some of the rooms of the Kanzleramt, which is quite a nice treat, because I've just realised that the personal helipad is right in front of me. Oh, this is the cabinet room, right? Huge oval table. Beautiful, isn't it? So and the Chancellor sits over there, opposite of her, the Minister of Finance, so he can hear when that's both somebody, yeah, when somebody uh, asks for any money. money, asks for money, exactly. Um, left of the Chancellor is uh, the Chief of Staff of the Federal Chancellery, and left of him is State Minister Brown. I'm fascinated because I'd never thought about this, but you see, we say Peter Altmaier, very you know, strong ally, Chief of Staff to Angela Merkel. And then Sigmar Gabriel... He's, the he's the vice-chancellor. The vice-chancellor sits on the other side. By the opposite party. Wow. By the, by the so it's, it really is. Uh, you you see the, the grand coalition in action there, yeah, don't you? It's just, uh, fascinating that you've got uh, her sort of team member on one side of her, the vice-chancellor from another party, and they seem to get on quite well together. And then the other ministers, BM, Bundesminister, exactly. and then their, their names... Uh, and it, it's all very beautifully laid out. As someone who was in the old East Germany, I'm fascinated that Angela Merkel still gets to look from her cabinet position right at the television tower and the old trade centre of East Berlin. So there's bits of her past on display every day, aren't there? And then this way, the sort of the greenery of West Berlin, which we're just walking past on the, the way out, and the book-lined outer office. Well, that was lovely to get a view into the inner sanctum of, of Angela Merkel. And as I was nosying around in the Kanzleramt, who should whisk past me but Frau Merkel herself? She was heading off to that reassuringly large Audi down to the south of the old East Germany where she desperately needs to win back votes from the Alternative for Deutschland, the far right, and to show that she's a Chancellor who can best unite Germans. But in Saxony, in the town of Torgau, she didn't get a warm reception. I've never really seen Angela Merkel look, look so un unhappy as she looks at the moment in this really quite a barrage of noise against her. Very different from the sovereign, smiling Chancellor we saw in Berlin yesterday. It's, it's a tough election for her out on the road, perhaps tougher than it feels in the capital. That rally in Torgau was part of, I think, a very difficult week for Angela Merkel as she toured around parts of the East um, being heckled and coming across real resistance. Um, here in Schwerin, uh, with the build-up to the rally, here in the final stage of the campaign, there's certainly a lot of expectation that she could face similar um, heckling, similar um, objections from some of the locals um, in, in this area that is quite a stronghold of the, the AFD, of, of the populist right. And what is it about the former East, um, both Torgau and Schwerin, were in East Germany. You were a correspondent there for a number of years. What do you think sort of marks it apart almost three decades after the fall of the wall politically? It is an interesting question because it's waxed and waned, hasn't it? There was a period when 
the, the story seemed to be a bit more upbeat, more cheerful, that the two Germanys were growing together. I think economically, when there are strains of any sort going on in wage levels, all the big stuff that you, you cover in Germany all the time these days, it's felt more in the old East. That's certainly true. And the second thing you have to say is the failure of the Social Democrats to really break through in 1990 what looked like ideal territory for them in many ways for a moderate centre-left party. That never entirely worked. And that's left this gap into which the far left and now the far right have gone. I think it really bothers Merkel. She's campaigning heavily in the East this time. Partly she needs those votes back as much as she can get them. But she is still an Aussie. And watching her in Torgau, I think she genuinely finds it quite unsettling to get that response there. That points to, I think, a broader story about this election, which is the fragmentation of German politics. You know, for many years, particularly looking at it from the other side of the Iron Curtain, from the former West Germany, uh, for many years, even decades, that was a a country with three major parties, the the, the Christian Democrats, the Social Democrats and the Free Liberals. It's looking like the next Bundestag will have six parties in it, or seven if you include the Bavarian uh, Christian Social Union. I wonder what that means for government formation. Is it going to be harder to pull together a majority in the Bundestag? I suppose it means that the governing party, most likely the CDU, has to be prepared to do deals more broadly. I mean, even quite unlikely ones. And I think you've been writing a bit about the CDU cozying up to the Greens, I have to say, in the time in 1990, that still seemed a very improbable outcome from this shattering, I suppose, of certainties through unification and beyond. Yes, I recently interviewed Cem Özdemir, who's one of the lead candidates of the Green Party, and I was struck by how reluctant he was really to lay into the Christian Democrats. Of of course, there are differences between the two parties, but he was uh, suggesting that they would probably manage to form a coalition if the numbers were right. The question, of course, is will the numbers be there for that sort of government? Will the numbers be there for a a Christian Democrat Democrat liberal government? Will um, Mrs Merkel do a deal with the Social Democrats again? What do you think? It it could be quite a, a long process forming the next German government. Well, it it hostage to fortune this close to the election, aren't we? But I think I'd eat my hat if it was a Jamaica coalition for everything that is said now. It's possible technically, culturally, I think still less likely. I think a really interesting question is who wants a continuation of a grand coalition? We know that Sigmar Gabriel is quite likely to do so. He'd stay on as vice chancellor, a nice important job for him. But would Angela Merkel actually prefer a bit more wriggle room, perhaps to the right of politics, the centre-right, and go with the Free Democrats? What do you think if she could choose what would she do, Jeremy? I think if she could choose, she would certainly go for the Free Democrats, whether or not that would be her first choice. You know, people talk about her being a secret Social Democrat. But the tradition, of course, is, is, as you know, as well as anyone is in her party, is to go with the Free Democrats if the numbers allow. So I think if those two parties can form a majority in the Bundestag, that's what's going to happen. The more interesting thing is perhaps if the numbers don't suffice for that and Angela Merkel has to choose between another, perhaps rather lacklustre, grand coalition with the SPD or a much more... Uh, Uh, fractious and difficult um, Jamaica coalition with those two smaller parties. Well, Jeremy and I will be back to digest the election results, we hope without having to eat a good portion of humble kuchen. Until then, please do get in touch. Let us know your thoughts on Angela Merkel and the German elections on Twitter at Economist Radio or via email to radio at economist.com. In London and Berlin, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. 
How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.